I'm Sean Graham, and what's old as news this week are place names. Yes, in the past decade or so, there's been ever-increasing debate about the value of naming places after people. Now, this convention, of course, is not new, but the evaluation of it in the public forum is something that has really generated a lot of content, a lot of interest, and a lot of spirited debate in the past few years. And a lot of it centers around the idea of changing names, whether those be street names, school names, town names, whatever it may be. The idea of changing a name from something elicits a passion in people and typically an an angry passion that we don't see all that often when it comes to public policy and public debates. And there's obviously a lot of reasons why this engenders such a strong response, partly because people are very attached to locations. Whether it's the town you grew up in, the street you grew up on, where you moved to, where something significant in your life happened, you associate that positive event or that transformative event with that location and as a result, the name of it. So if the name changes, a lot of people feel like their personal connection to it will change as well. And there's also the argument that you are quote unquote changing history when you change the name. I would argue that that is not an accurate reflection of what happens and that naming something after a person is ahistorical, that if you actually want to preserve history, the best way to do it is to not name things after people, because I find it very dehumanizing. It disembodies the person from their human experience. And so if we name something after them, I think it actually is harmful to understanding them as a historical figure. Now, that's my argument. So as we'll talk about in the show, I feel strongly that anything that's ever been named after a person could and should be renamed. And I I think another important part of the discussion when we talk about changing names, history, and heritage is that in Canada, everywhere across the country had a name before Europeans arrived. Obviously, certain streets didn't, things that did not exist, buildings that weren't there, streets that weren't there, they did not have names, but rivers, lakes, areas that are now towns and municipalities, provinces, they all had names prior to European arrivals. So all the names have been changed or created. So therefore, I would argue that they can be changed again. And we will talk about an example of that on the other side of our interview, which is with Lauren Beck, who has written a book entitled Canada's Place Names and How to Change Them, in which she explores how places get their names in Canada. And oftentimes, this perhaps is unsurprising, it's done through a very colonial lens. So as Europeans arrived in Canada, they gave names that were either of important people in Europe or place names in Europe that they applied here. So she explores the origins of these names and the cultural, regional, and historic conventions that created them and the connections that are made and how people respond to the idea of changing them and the process 
for changing names. This is a really wonderful conversation. There's a lot of layers to this. And I will acknowledge that I might be slightly on the extreme end of, yes, just rename everything. But I am very conscious and respectful, I hope I'm respectful at least, of those who disagree because I understand where the connection comes from to place that you can generate a very, very strong connection somewhere. And if that changes, it feels very personal or can feel very personal to you. So I don't want to diminish that. I think it's important though, just to understand where the connection does come from, that it's the physical place more so potentially than the name, I think that creates the connection. So changing the name, I would argue, doesn't diminish connection to place. The physical would be my argument. But again, I know a lot of people feel very strongly about this issue. And I think Lauren explains the history of names in Canada, as well as the current situation in a way that is much more eloquent and nuanced than perhaps I can do and have done on this show and back on the history slam. So let's get right into that chat. One that I enjoyed very much with Lauren Beck. Lauren Beck joins me now, author of Canada's Place Names and How to Change Them. Lauren, how are you today? Oh, I'm very well. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm thrilled that you're here. Uh, It took a while to get this put together. Entirely my fault, too, I should say. Uh, But I'm I'm thrilled that uh, it has come together and that we are are talking about names and changes and the origins of so many names of, of places across the country. So let's get right into it. I think where we should potentially start is the idea of place names and who got to name them because one of the discussions that I've had with people over the years about the idea of changing names of things, they would say to me like, well, history and heritage, and you can't change anything. You can't change it. Cause that's the history. And one of the things I would say is, well, everywhere in the country had a name before Europeans showed up. So somebody changed it. So when we look at the map today and we see names of places, Generally speaking, what is the origin of the names? Like, is is there any sort of percentage between indigenous names, mispronunciation of indigenous names, purely European names named after people? Like, is there some way to generalize across the country the names of places? That's a great, great question. I, I think our place names in Canada and in the Americas more generally are primarily informed by colonialism. So many of them reflect the European experience of looking at and viewing these lands, uh, valuing what they contain, for instance, and so on. While we certainly do have a significant amount of toponymy that reflects Indigenous names, I wouldn't say that much of that toponymy, at least until recent years, has been generated by... Uh, or embraced by Indigenous communities, whether that's in North America or South America. So there has been very much a subtler attempt or a European subtler attempt to embrace Indigenous names. And we can talk about the reasons for that historically, what what those are. But otherwise, our names are primarily uh, familiar sounding if one has a European background because they are rendered in English or French in the case of Canada. 
um, sometimes other languages, that, that have roots in other parts of the world. So many of our names here are simply uh, imported from one way or another through culture or language from somewhere, some other place in the world, which is sort of interesting if you're from England or France and you're born there as our contemporaries and you look across the Atlantic to Canada, it must be an interesting experience to see names and words that reflect your culture used somewhere where maybe you don't know a lot about the culture of Canada or its pre-Canadian <laughs> roots as a colonial society, as indigenous, a group of indigenous societies and so on. And you think too about, say, the, the British Empire. I've spent some time in the Caribbean. Obviously, the capital of Jamaica is Kingston, and I grew up in southern Ontario, near not too far away from Kingston, a couple hours drive from Kingston. And there's obviously Kingston. Like, there's the the names get repeated in various places throughout the empire. So not only if you're English could you look across to Canada, but you can kind of look anywhere in the world and find some of these names. So how much does Canada have in common with other colonial states like Australia, a place like Jamaica, South Africa, or then, of course, places within the French realm as well, uh, when the, the, the French were out colonizing. Do you see this repetition throughout the world? There's absolutely repetition. And I think that's due to a couple primary factors. First, um, the same nations uh, didn't just stop at colonizing, invading and colonizing Canada, what we call Canada now. So they went and, and their names are distributed elsewhere. So we have the Kingstons manifested on different continents, as you brought bring up. But also the naming practices are, are the same. The approach through which men, primarily male explorers or uh, invaders, soldiers, colonial authorities, missionaries, and so on. But these are the main typologies of namers going back thinking uh, in the case of Britain, who went to different places and they were endowed, sometimes officially, sometimes not so officially, with the capacity to give names. And what's interesting is when you read, I'm thinking Christopher Columbus's diaries, because he is uh, the first to have written down the experience of coming to the Americas and to have that published and distributed back home in Europe, he was a, he was entrusted with the capacity to to name on the one hand, but he was also very much aware that the places where he visited, they already had names. So this sort of obvious realization that we have today, that many of our many of our places have pre-existing names that do not reflect their current names, is a procedure or a process that Columbus also apprehended, which then makes us wonder, well, what, did, what about Champlain or uh, some, of, some of the uh, Cartier, some of the explorers and uh, and, and uh, in, in Canada, in the Canadian context, what were they thinking? And unfortunately, not everybody wrote about it, but but some do. And so we can sort of, you know, have a, a fairly, fairly good understanding that what what this sort of topic, as we talk about today, is one that um, existed in the past as well. And so that makes me ask, then, what is the value of a place name? By awarding a name to a place that I know already has a name, what am I doing? And I think the, the, the primary action that is achieved is one of claiming space or occupying space using a toponym. So if we think about early modern maps before Canada exists as such, uh, the types of names that were being distributed here uh, from the eyes of other European nation states who also wanted to expand into the Americas 
gave everybody an idea of where certain nations were trying to set up their own colonial enclave. And so I think there's a lot, a, a lot about that when it comes to occupying space, even with just a toponym with a place name that gives us urgency to the importance of naming, even though there are already names. I want to get into this because one of the things that I think I know about indigenous place names is that they're often very descriptive of something, whether it's a a geographic point or a place where something happened, this is where you could find a certain type of food or it's good hunting grounds or something, whereas European place names more often are named after a person or or a, uh, an important place back in Europe. Uh, and as a result, it is, as you say, this, this claiming. So how much of one, am I correct in that overgeneralization of uh, indigenous names? And two, is, is that factor of the way in which indigenous peoples in what is now Canada traditionally named places just a a representation or a misunderstanding of things like land usage, the European versus the traditional methods in the Americas? Oh, that's that. Those are all uh, great questions and great points. (laughs) Um, So to the original, to to the first question about indigenous place names, because Euro settlers like commemorative names, whether that commemorates a place back in Europe or uh, a European official or settler colonial one, Indigenous names do not typically commemorate people. They usually are handy. They're useful. They're tools for understanding the landscape uh, so that you understand what you can do in a place or when you've arrived in a place and therefore what to expect at different times of the year, uh, for example. So I think uh, the complexity of Indigenous names often goes, uh, is often rendered silent or goes unnoticed by non-Indigenous people because we have such a broad reliance. We have relied so heavily upon uh, primarily commemorative names, but also descriptive names. And by descriptive names, I mean um, ones like um, Big Lake or Deep River. So that are, that, that don't really describe the experience of being in the place, but rather are a bit of a general sort of observation or characteristic of the place. And there are some indigenous indigenous names that are like that too, of course, but a signature element of many indigenous names is this connection with experiencing and being related or embodied with or next to a place somehow. So uh, I think more indigenous place names as being place stories, that there's a lot more to to the names than might meet the eye. What about place names that are based off of translated or potentially mistranslated indigenous names. One example that comes up is Great Whale River, that in English, Great Whale River, in French, uh, the, the French version of that was La, La Baleine Grande or, or something like that. Uh, and then there's Cree and Inuit names for that location as well that don't refer to whale. I, I believe it's is it beluga, if specifically in those languages. So how do we kind of understand names like that that are translated versions of the indigenous names? Like how how do we try to fit that within the colonial project? In one way, I think there, there could be an opportunity and not all indigenous groups might agree or see it as such potentially, but 
by having names that are, exist in translation or in more than one linguistic state, we sort of invite the opportunity to have multilingual names by which you might uh, refer to a place by one name in one language, I might use a different one. But in so doing, by expanding our place name vocabularies as a people, I think we could easily understand that we're speaking about the same place. So over time, I think we can negotiate which names we want to use, but also become aware of which names other people want to use. But going back to you to the to the matter of translation, that's a that's a, that's a tricky one. It's a, I'm in a bilingual province, the only officially bilingual province where we we have some officially bilingual place names. And uh, uh, I'm also from Southern Ontario. So the experience of moving out this way was quite interesting in, in, the, in terms of encountering names in translation, whether it's English and French names. And because of the history of New Brunswick, we, we actually see that quite a bit where one col colonial group gets displaced or has to negotiate power relations, and in this case, names, um, with another one from Europe. This is probably one of the underlying issues for language politics in my province, if not the entire country, right, uh, when it comes to translated names. And what's actually what's interesting is certain name authorities uh, in the province of Quebec, for example, they have rules about translating names and about the importance of rendering names in, in that case, in French. Uh, and that relates to other parts of language nationalism and, and whatnot, but also the importance of um, having a sovereignty over names uh, as a province and to ensure that the name is chosen to be expressed in, in French in that case. So the, the matter of language is very important and quite political. There was a, um, a commissioned report on race in, in New Brunswick, and that final report was published on Friday. And one of the recommendations about apparently systemic racism in New Brunswick was to use more or to, to support the implementation of more indigenous place names. And one of the examples that the report provided uh, is, is the river of St. John, which is a river that comes from Maine and, and empties uh, into the Bay of Funday, comes through the province, goes through Fredericton and St. John. It's called the St. John river. The report recommended that it be renamed after the people who traditionally have lived in that region, the Wolostoque people. And so that, that sort of awareness that renaming a place, maybe translating a name or untranslating it um, and replacing it with something entirely different could go a long way for uh, fostering better relationships between different groups of people in the province, whether that's between Anglophone and Francophone communities, or in this case, Indigenous and settler communities. One of the things, though, that comes up i think when we talk about place names particularly in a country as big as canada where where communities are separated geographically it's a it's a big country uh you know from coast to coast to coast is regional dialects too so a small example is i grew up in georgetown ontario and there's a little community next door to us that if you're in georgetown or in the surrounding area everyone would call it norval n-o-r-v-a-l and I was working at Parks Canada a few years ago, and there was a project that came up specific to a site in Norval. And all of my colleagues read the word and said Norval, because you would say it, it's spelled like Dorval in near Montreal. So I think that's just a natural reaction. That's how you would say it. And I would say, well, no, like locally, like if, if you go there and say Norval, no one is either going to know what you're talking about or you will get made fun of. So... 
you know, when you think about regional dialects and, and renaming or, or even just the way people read a word versus how they say a word, when you talk about you could rename it if you want, but it's really how people say it and use it. Is it not? It is. I mean, another example is uh, Greenwich or is it Greenwich? Yeah. Uh, there's, yeah. there's, I think, three or four different pronunciations that we have in the Maritimes alone, depending on which province you're in. Um, and so as somebody who's uh, from away out here, I found one of my first uh, interesting experiences I had as a new uh, a newcomer to this area is learning how to say the place names in a way that locals embrace. Because by saying them incorrectly, you identify yourself as not being from a place, <laughs> yeah. which has may have other implications. Just over the border in Nova Scotia, we have a place, a, a town called Amherst. Sorry, excuse me. My Southern Ontario self would say Amherst yeah. um, as for the 18th century colonizer by that name. Uh, but locals call it Amherst. And so it's, it's very different pronunciation uh, and, and it also allows us to detect immediately if somebody is not from the region because everybody seems to be able to negotiate that hard H or lack thereof <laughs> locally. And, but that, that points to broader issues in how place names uh, allow us to build communities or understand our membership to those communities, our belongingness to the communities based simply on how we pronounce or spell place names. Absolutely. But I do wonder if, say... A place is renamed and take, so I live in Ottawa right now, right? That's a mispronunciation of an indigenous word. The, the name of the country is a mispronunciation of, a, of an indigenous word. So if a place, if we're going to go back to traditional names, potentially for non-speakers of the language, is it possible that within non-indigenous communities or, or, or non-speakers of the languages the pronunciation gets, say, mangled, for lack of a better word, to the to the point where it's kind of misrepresenting what the word is supposed to be. Is that a factor when we're trying to think about place names and respecting the traditional names of locations? I think that there's a, a cleavage here in naming a, a certain opportunity, because when we find a mistake, or an oversight, um, our, our, our corrective action might be something that we could take and justifiably with much more buy-in than there might be if there wasn't an obvious reason to change a name or to modify it somehow. And so if I come to you and I say there's a spelling mistake, um, this was put down incorrectly, um, let's update it, uh, that, that, and that, that might make the update of the small change so insignificant to people who live in that place or identify with that place that they wouldn't so much mind seeing the implementation, particularly when it's, it's justified broadly. That being said, knowledge that names are inadequately spelled and that that may have happened decades or centuries ago does not necessarily result in any meaningful correction. So in Moncton, New Brunswick, also named after an 18th century colonial official, that the man's name was spelled differently, had a K in it, than it is rendered today. And there's a nice little sort of historical story about why that is the case and how the name got to be spelled without a K. But the fact is, we've decided, despite our awareness that a spelling mistake occurred, a clerical error happened, we have made no real means to correct it. 
So that's also interesting to have that example in the balance of, you know, should we update incorrect names? But the example you point to of Canada is perhaps the more difficult one to deal with, where we have a name that means village, as in that place over there, no particular village, that somehow uh, through a series of uh, documents became projected onto the, the colonial ambitions of of, of France and later embraced as our nation's uh, nation's name, which of course, uh, when I think of Canada, I don't think village. That doesn't characterize our country, and uh, I mean, and many country names aren't all that evident as a characteristic of the people or the place either. So uh, we're no different than many other places, I think, in that respect. But nonetheless, we have a name as a country that is, I think, somewhat erroneous. It was given in a way that. Its meaning was not evident and it became used in a way that I don't think it was meant to be used by the indigenous people who pointed over there and said village. Right. <laughs> I don't think their intention was to see it become a, you know, a, a national or state name. And so for, for all those reasons, we can rethink our names and I think we should re- rethink our names, but finding mistakes in our names does not unfortunately lead to us correcting them. I wonder too, though, when we think about the names themselves and and potential mistakes or mispronunciations of indigenous words, there has to be at some point like a triage, right? There's so many names uh, of places across the country. This is a a big country, lots of names. And when we think about the naming conventions and potentially addressing or revisiting some of the colonial names for places, is there a triage of them? Is there a way to say, well, all right, this is more important important than potentially this one because there's a practicality to it or is it really a project where just simply understanding the process through which this place became identified by this name that that is really the work that needs to be done to put our place names within the context of the larger colonial project it's hard to say i think by understanding how our names came to be particularly when it's our community or the street that we live on or our schools uh, is, is a good, it's a good thing. Cause then we have some basic historical understanding about the relevance of the name to, to our own identities. Cause we come from these places, we get degrees and whatnot from these places. Something that I would think of is like Toronto Metropolitan University, right. Ah. As it's, as it's now known. I understand. And I will preface this too, by saying, and I've said this on the show before, it was up to me, everything gets renamed or everything that is named after a person gets renamed. Uh, I don't care who the person was. You could say even this person. And my answer is yes, even that person. Like, let's not name stuff after people. Let's not put up or up statues. That's kind of my de facto position. But if we take the example of Toronto Metropolitan University, for instance, that went from a name that at least a, a certain portion of that community felt some level of attachment to that name to now a name that from the outside and based on the commentary I've seen around it is so meaningless to everybody at that community that it it seemed like an exercise in futility. So when we undertake these projects and we say, okay, this is one that we want to change this name there's a, here's our reason for doing it. it. It doesn't seem to me that it's just, that's not the end, like just deciding to change it. 
whatever the new name is, there has to be thought and meaning. And I think your research and your work provides, if not a roadmap on the meaning of place names, at least provides some level of, of context to how place names get meaning attached to them. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, thank you for that. I think the example of Ryerson is excellent in, in, in all the ways as an exa- as a case study for how to change a name and possibly how not to change a name. There was, when that movement to change Ryerson to TMU came about, there was quite a bit of backlash and uh, hesitancy within the administration. And I don't mean to criticize the administration. What they've done is quite difficult, but primarily one of their greatest concerns, if I was uh, an administrator at TMU, Ryerson, would be uh, how will this name change alienate our donors? Because I don't have to tell you that in Canada, donors play a significant role in supporting our educational ambitions at the university and college level. And by changing a name, I, I'd be curious to know what that email they sent out to their <laughs> um, donors uh, looked like, because uh, what's next? You know, one of the buildings named after them, one of the programs named after them. Uh, and I think that that is a serious consideration, but uh, I don't know if you were being flippant when you suggest we uh, change all names that might commemorate people, but that's not a bad idea. At first, because I, I estimate that at least 80% of our, our names that relate to people are for white men that commemorate white men. And so we have this overwhelming presence of a demographic that who, while important, does not reflect the demographics of Canada and hasn't ever in terms of the over the over representation of male white male in particular but male names as a result leaving people say like me a woman to have fewer opportunities to see herself and so while there would be the possibility of replacing all names and related people which could be in, in general a priority area for new names as they come along or names that have to get changed for whatever reason Uh, planning purposes. Sometimes there's communities with more than one street (laughs) with the same name. They're just one's a crescent, one's a drive, one's an avenue, and it causes all sorts of confusion. So increasingly, there's this project to diversify names just to avoid confusion for ambulances and polices, police police people and fire fire people, fire brigades, uh, which makes a lot of sense. But then on the other side of things, if we choose to continue commemorating people with names at the street level, park level, and so on. And I think it'd be very difficult not to, uh, because it's such an integrated practice within our society. But were we to choose to continue, then we might want to identify either priority areas or consider what would the map of Canada or of this town look like if it reflected the demography of the place. Uh, As a possibility, given that we're a democratic country, so we tend to think about demography and representation and fairness and scope and scale of the representation of individuals at a larger at a larger level. So I think I think either of those might be interesting, but let's maybe talk about Toronto and TMU. The city of Toronto itself uh, recently voted to remove all street, uh, park and so on references that invoked Henry Dundas and Dundas. If you come from Southern Ontario, that's yeah. a really familiar name. Cause that's like, you know, there's young street and there's Dundas. And these are, these are like an axis of names that everybody streets that everybody knows. They go through so many communities and Dundas itself is a community. 
And so to see the, 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 the city commit to changing all names associated with Dundas because of his hesitance to abolish uh, slavery when he had the opportunity um, and the possible, definitely, uh, alienation that this causes today among the city's Black uh, population, Afro-descendant population, uh, makes a lot of sense. So from either whether from an economic or social or political perspective, having names in a community that anchor people or make them feel disenfranchised from a naming perspective isn't doing anybody good either. So they've decided to identify a priority area, replace Dundas with names that celebrate the Black population somehow or other. That's my understanding. We'll see in a few years how this project goes along. I'm quite interested because of the size, the sheer scope of the project at uh, in Canada's largest city uh, to see how they do this. It'll be the biggest renaming project of that sort that I'm aware of that wasn't motivated by a new colonizer showing up. So I'll say like, I, I maybe I'm being slightly flippant, but I do genuinely believe that we shouldn't name things after people. And one of the reasons for me is that I find it, frankly, a little dehumanizing uh, to the individual themselves, that it doesn't allow for the totality of their life or their lived experience because we put them, and in, in the case of statues, quite literally, we put them then up on a pedestal and we can't have this holistic understanding of who they were. And the other thing that I think happens, and I would argue that this happened in the case of Dundas is that the word stops being associated with necessarily the person uh, on first blush. So if you take Dundas, you know, I would just growing up, going into the city, you talk about like, oh, we're on Dundas Street, we're going to young Dundas Square or something. Uh, or at some point, or, or even if you took a poll of say high school kids in the GTA right now, how many of them, if they hear the word Pearson are thinking about the prime minister versus the airport. At some point, does the person then get lost to what the name is? And in some cases, yeah, maybe we want that person not to necessarily be associated. But in other cases, like if Toronto is going to undertake this this project and, and name these locations after prominent members of the African-Canadian community, do we want that process in 100 years where it's just another street name as opposed to actually being associated directly with the person. Now, I, I don't know, is, is that something that is just an isolated example or something that me as someone who has studied history kind of maybe makes myself feel better uh, saying that? Or, or in your research, have you found that even if there isn't like a direct linkage immediately to the person for a majority of the population, that that connection and the process through which the thing was, was named and that the power structure itself is is still there and it still has a long-term ramification. I absolutely agree with you. I think there could be some possible solutions besides discontinuing commemorative names, but I take your point about the sort of disembodiment. I didn't know much about Dundas until, uh, having grown up in the GTA or Southern Ontario region until a few years ago, and I was educated in, in Southern Ontario. So the fact is we don't necessarily receive a deep uh, knowledge of the history of the places where we come from or the region. And so that may be one component, because ultimately, if you become very familiar with Canadian history, all of a sudden, the, the, the map of Canada lights up 
um, as a bunch of historical figures uh, because you know the names and uh, Cornwallises are Cornwallises. You know, there are, there are, there are only so many of them. Most of the statues are of the same man and the names as well. Uh, and that's not true of every name though. So, uh, so that points to sort of a plurality of people who might share the same name. Uh, I'm not sure who Pearson Airport's <laughs> named after. I'm going to, I'm going to assume it might be um, the former prime minister, but maybe not. Uh, but we do have that propensity to name airports after politicians in this country. So, you know, that's a, a good guess. But, you know, the, the, I kind of like what the uh, province of Quebec has done with this. Many of their street names, park names, and so on make use of first names. And so that helps to eliminate any confusion or doubt, but also sort of in some way, anyhow, personifies the, the streets so that we understand um, that it refers to a person. Maybe we recognize the name of the person. So now we may think of, in case of Trudeau Airport, we might think of the former pri- prime minister by by that name and not have any doubt that it's that Trudeau and not the one who makes the wine glasses. <laughs> that after whom it's named, right? So Toronto, I'm, it is it is the Lester B. Pearson uh, International Airport. So I, I had the opportunity to work there for a summer, so I was confronted by that sign. Uh, every day. Oh, that must have been so cool. Going into in the airport. airport. <laughs> so it was actually, it was on the airfield. I was it wasn't in the terminal. It was on the airfield uh, doing runway repairs and stuff. And it was legitimately cool to see how the back end of a of an airport uh, works, especially one uh, the size of the the airport in Toronto. But it it also with quicksand. I'm so glad you right. survived the quicksand. <laughs> <laughs> It was, uh, it was, you know, there, there were some close calls on some things, but yeah, we managed to uh, get, get through it somehow and uh, and live to uh, tell some stories. And it is interesting, though, to think that, yeah, there a lot of the, there are, are airports across the country named for prime ministers. And there are also a lot of places that are named for whether, well, I don't know what word you want to use, like the word industrialist uh, or like these, these wealthy individuals and you know when we think of the idea of of who built the country right in the american context this comes up a lot of who built the wealth in the united states and the people for whom things are named tend to get the credit as the people who built the wealth and it ignores the fact that in a lot of those cases particularly in the south that the people were uh, enslaving other human beings and so who actually built the wealth and I don't know if I necessarily like that binary uh, approach of this group did this, this person gets the credit for it or anything like that. But when we, we talk about the Canadian context and the colonial project, do we have that kind of a, a stark discrepancy between the individuals who tend to be credited with things and therefore have places, streets, schools, whatever named after them versus the individuals who were dispossessed or uh, you know, treated poorly historically. Like, does that dynamic play out in Canada in a similar way as, as we would see in the United States or elsewhere? I think so. I, I think that we have shown a taste for uh, name, commemorative naming in particular since the 1600s in North America in, in general, in the Anglophone and Francophone worlds 
uh, I should clarify, because it's a bit different in the Spanish speaking world. And we stuck with it. And it's it's kind of snowballed as, as particularly nations have formed, Canada, United States, uh, and the colonies that construct that from which they're constructed. We've perpetuated this, but also because naming when it comes to the examples that we've talked about so far is primarily uh, focused on uh, commemorating uh, people of, who, who have privileged, whether privileged, whether it's because they have education or wealth um, or some sort of political power. And those individuals have been pretty, pretty masculine, pretty masculine until recent decades, um, until the civil rights movements of the 1960s in particular, after which we begin to see some some changes in terms of uh, who who is wealthy um, and who, who who is a politician. But that being said, I think the 25 most wealthiest people in Canada, I think all but maybe one are men. So not much has changed in that right. way. And when we think about the expansion of, say, a new industrial park or a new street for the purpose of building a new a new location for a factory or whatnot, it's not uncommon to see the names of companies which may themselves reflect the names of families or some uh, some version of, of that projected onto those places. Uh, and maybe there's nothing wrong with that because on the one hand, if you go to Toyota Drive uh, and you find a Toyota company there, the, the, the factory or a dealership, well, <laughs> the name is a descriptive one in theory, right? Because <laughs> you, yeah. you found what you're looking for, they match up. So you could look at it that way, but then on the other hand, uh, and I like the term disembodied that you use, this way of sort of inscribing in a fairly permanent way, because once we learn a name for a place, it's hard for us, it seems to be hard for us not to use it, at least in a generational way. Whereas, you know, if if my children and your children know a place by a different name, they, they may know the newer name and therefore embrace it. And we, we maybe that's a predilection of the human species. I'm not sure if that's something of the Western condition or more broadly, if that's, you know, it just makes sense to have um, new, uh, the next generation uh, embrace new, newer names or more recently adopted names that for the rest of us, if we've grown up with a different name, it's difficult for us to remember maybe the, the new name. On the other hand, uh, people like you and me, I suspect, <laughs> who are naming activists um, uh, wouldn't hesitate to to broaden our place name vocabularies in order to ensure that social justice is done through names. And But th- then there is a small group of us who are, you know, uh, interested in see- seeing names change precisely to try and perform certain duties to our society, like reconciliation with indigenous people. Uh, and then going back to that example, the St. John River being renamed to Willistique, uh St. John, something like that. Uh, that That's the intention behind it, uh, be, behind asking and consulting with indigenous groups about names, existing names and future names. And I should say, because it's important to give credit where credit is due, in Canada, we have a naming authority, the Geographical Names Board of Canada, and over the years, I've had the um, privilege to chat with members of, of the board, and uh, I'm aware that they are also aware of how difficult it is to rename or correct historically incorrect names when they relate to Indigenous people, because it's not really, they don't really have the knowledge to do that, because it's culturally specific or linguistically specific knowledge. Uh, but also, it's not their job to go into communities and say, hey, what's what name do you want us to use? <laughs> What name do you want to appear in Google Maps? 
Um, yeah. That's not really in, in the purview of the, of the committee uh, or of the geographical needs board either. And so what they've been trying to do is uh, find ways to empower new names or renaming from within communities who are interested in, in, in going about or decolonization of the map, if we can call it that. Nunavut in particular is a wonderful example of how successful this such a project can, can be. On the other hand, it is also the newest province or territory in, in the country, but that nonetheless, we have seen names transform throughout that territory, discarding colonial ones and implementing indigenous ones that have come about, as far as I understand, through consultation with elders and with communities uh, who have a relationship to the place so named. So I think we could learn a lot from the methodology undertaken by Nunavut's naming authorities and the way it's tried to build consultation into any attempt to rename, but also to discard colonial names. If in 2022-23, we, as a collective, as a Canadian people, we would like to see colonialism if we want to distance ourselves from colonialism, well, an easy way to do that would be precisely to take down some statues and to change some names. But that's easier said than done because then you have to come up with a process through which new names are adopted and where there's buy-in for those new names as well. We'll see what happens with Ryerson University, which I keep calling Ryerson University, going back to, I grew up with it being a university, um, to TMU. But it'll also be interesting to see and say, 50 years, do people still call Ryerson University Ryerson, or is it completely TMU? And for that matter, Toronto is an anglicized or francosized version of um, Indigenous word. So uh, will that be updated or problematized? And how might that impact Ryerson University, TMU's identity as well? So these are very complicated because we all have, well, we all come from a place that has a name. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's, it is. It's so interesting to, to think about it, too. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it's the most famous example in Canadian history, but at least around where I grew up, Berlin to Kitchener uh, during the First World War. And then over time, it's just it's Kitchener and then it's KW and uh, with, within the region. And as you say, it's not just place names, but language evolves over time and the way people speak today is different from the way people spoke 10 years ago versus 100 years ago versus a thousand years ago the language evolves and it takes time for sure and i would just put place names within that category of might sound weird at some point but eventually people would get used to it and the other thing too is recognizing that the name that a place currently have or has was given to it by somebody very few of these would be organically just come up with right it was assigned to the place by somebody in power and taking it away or changing it i i don't find i like i, don't, I just don't think names of places are really ever sacrosanct like they they can be changed and will be okay I'm glad you brought up the example of Kitchener. I happen to have, that's one of the places they went to school. So they actually use that name change as an opportunity to educate us about, you know, the First World War and the perception of having a Germanic background in the community as being, you know, maybe a bunch of traitors, basically. So they changed the name and they selected the name of Kitchener. Uh, I think the first name is John Kitchener. He, he was a, a fighter pilot 
went down in the first world war and they, and he just died and they, um, and he made the roster of naming possibilities alongside Brock and just other names that subsequently were lent to future communities uh, with the same name. So that, that sort of example shows there's a, a continuity of naming candidates that one way or another might make their way, if not onto <laughs> this community or onto this street, onto some other community park or street in the future. Uh, so there's almost a, a willingness or a, an approved list of names uh, that's not approved by any means, um, but <laughs> a certain continuum of names that might, you know, in, in our sh- short-term future impact our, our names. And I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And uh, there's there's so much more to unpack uh, with all this. And uh, so we would encourage you to check out Canada's Place Names and How to Change Them. Uh, Lauren, if people want to pick up a copy of the book, uh, if they want to learn more about your research and, and your projects, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, they can Google me, Lauren Beck. Uh, they can look at look up the book. It will take you to the publisher's website. Uh, they can also check out my lab, the Center for Early Modern Visual Culture, cemvc.ca. And we have lots of stuff there that they can check out. Terrific. And if you Google Lauren Beck too, I, I learned this, put like scholar or, or something like that, because you might get the survivor player, uh, Lauren Beck. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, if, if you're aware of this, Lauren, that uh, in season 39, one of the, the player named Lauren Beck went pretty deep into the game. And uh, therefore, you got to specify which Lauren Beck you're looking for now. I think we might both be survivors, but thank you very much for bringing up that uh, great naming coincidence. I think that's one of the bigger bigger lessons that came out of the book. We can't make assumptions about uh, about names necessarily. You know, we, yeah. there's always a story, or in this case, people behind yeah. them, and it's uh, well, it's kind of cool to figure out who they are. I think. Absolutely. And uh, so, so there you go. We will link to everything in the show notes below as well. Uh, so Lauren Beck, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Son, for having me. So there you have it, my chat with Lauren Beck. I thank her for her time. And again, Canada's place names and how to change them. Check for the link down in the show notes. So with that, let's get right into today's historical headline of the week. And there are a lot to pick from this week, but going to go one that is very local to me and very recent from the Globe and Mail. Cindy Tran, this is actually a Canadian press article about the National Capital Commission here in Ottawa making the decision to change the name of the Sir John A. Macdonald Parkway. This happened just a couple of weeks ago. The article is from January 19th, 2023. The National Capital Commission, following a recommendation or support from the city of Ottawa, has decided to rename the Sir John A. Macdonald Parkway, which runs west of downtown. The NCC announced that it will be an indigenous name that replaces Sir John A. Macdonald on the parkway. What's interesting about this particular renaming is that there is the predictable outcry from a lot of folks that this is erasing history, that this, what they perceive to be self-loathing of Canadians or constantly trying to apologize for everything in the past. This is just another example of that, of wokeism. But this one's really interesting to me because the parkway was not called the Sir John A. Macdonald Parkway until 2012. And it was under the conservative government of Stephen Harper. Now, this still was a National Capital Commission decision, but it was under a previous government. They decided to put Sir John A. Macdonald's name 
on the parkway back in 2012. So this has only been just over 10 years of the McDonald Parkway. And yet still there is this argument, this, this loathing of this decision under the argument that it is erasing history. On the show, we talked about Ryerson and that name of that institution has a much longer history than the Sir John A. Macdonald Parkway does. But Sir John A. Macdonald generates a lot of discussion when you talk about him. There is a lot named after him. People have very strong thoughts and feelings about him as the first prime minister in Canadian history, what happened under his government and what his place within the national memory should be. So it really does generate a lot of discussion whenever his name comes up. And certainly that is the case here. And perhaps not surprising, given the publication, that the comment section is overwhelmingly against this decision with not a lot of nuance. But of course, comment sections aren't exactly known for their nuance on the internet. These discussions, though, need to be done in a nuanced way. We need to give each other our space to discuss them out thoroughly. It's not a case of everybody in the past is evil, which some people have suggested. It's also not the case that everybody wants to forget the past, which other people have suggested. No, that's, that's not, I would argue, what's going on here, that the idea of naming places, as we talked about with Lauren, is very nuanced. It's very much a product of contemporary culture. And how we associate name with place is very powerful. And for those who argue that places should be renamed, have to understand that those who feel strongly about the place names, it's not always about the person that something is named after. It can be deeper than that. It could be about the person themselves and the person for whom the street, town, school, whatever is named. But there could be deeper emotional attachments and connections to that name that go well beyond the person, as we talked about with Lauren, the idea of being disembodied or having something named after you, almost dehumanizing. Like the example we used with Lauren with Lester B. Pearson International Airport in Toronto, the name Pearson for anyone under 25 I would suggest, is much more associated with an airport than it is a prime minister. And is that really preserving history? That's really for you to decide. And that's why today's historical headline of the week is Ottawa, Sir John A. Macdonald Parkway, to get an Indigenous name from the Globe and Mail via the Canadian press on January 19, 2023. So with that, I will say thank you so much for listening, everybody. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcast. Do the likes, ratings, comments, all that good stuff. Helps other people find the show, beats those algorithms. And as always, head over to activehistory.ca. All of our past episodes are there and all the great written content over on the site. And we will be back with you again next week for more What's Old is News.